What's up, everybody? My name is James D. Fury, and this is Blackball. The Klondike Papers. Do you remember when Justin Ling came on Blackballed? I don't know, maybe two months ago. And um, and he did a couple other podcasts too, saying that the Klondike Papers were um, the left wing version of QAnon because people were still sort of parsing through the document. And uh, people that didn't really have that much familiarity with the document were putting up videos and making connections where none were kind of found yet. Um, and Mia culpa, there was that time that David Wallace and Nathan Jacobson came on the show and alluded to a potential plot against the prime minister, um, an assassination plot. So I, I, can, I can understand if you cherry picked the beginnings of the Klondike paper, you might find it conspiratorial, but it was much too early to call it that. But my guest tonight uh, is one of the few reporters who's actually done the deep dive in a way where it can actually create tangible stories. He has uh, written and published uh, a few of them for Press Progress, and his name is Stephen Leguziak. Stephen, how are you, buddy? Hey, good. Thanks for having me on. Thank you. Um, how did you feel when you first saw that document and you opened it? Like, describe the next 24 hours that you actually had to work on it. And how it was different from a lot of documents that usually get leaked. Uh, in, I mean, there's nothing I've ever seen like this. But, you know, the, the layout of the document and, and, and if you found it interesting or did you find it daunting? Well, first thing, it nearly crashed my computer. It's like a two gigabyte file. I know. It's 6,500 pages of emails, uh, text message exchanges. And it comes with a companion packet of audio recordings. But it's all out of order, so it doesn't tell like a linear story. So it was overwhelming at first and still is. You first published, I believe this was the first one, right? Top Doug Ford advisor sent Premier's office back channel message about meeting with the Russian government. Leaked email show Russian officials sought help of Ontario PC insiders in an effort to flow Russian money into Ontario amid U.S. sanctions. When, when that was, that was the first story that I believe that came out out of all of them for the Klondike papers. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. I can't and, recall if it was that one or if it was the one about um, the geofencing and the surveillance on uh, one of the Ontario MPPs, Lisa McLeod. Possibly. Yeah, that was, uh, th that's interesting all on its own because her husband is like a weapons manufacturer executive. So who knows? <laughs> who knows who the geofence was for? Um, but when you saw that, one of my first reactions was like, oh, that's a story that's like three and a half years old. Is that going to resonate? And it, and it did. And then, but but do you think it got the 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 due that it deserved? Because if you read it, it is like a, it feels like a a couple of bumbling characters, an orchestra, like a, like a and a and a conductor, and then these pieces kind of floating around, and then nothing actually happening in the end. I think that it is a very complex story with a, a lot of ins and outs because it's dealing with, like, oh, let's see, what are all the uh, elements at play here? I mean, you have basically conservative and business insiders in Ontario. You have sanctioned Russian oligarchs. 
Russian government officials and officials in Doug Ford's office. There's just a lot of moving parts with that one. So one of my favorite um, uh, parts in that is um, one of my favorite parts in in that. Uh, well, I think you wrote in your story too was the exchange where uh, one of them says to, to David, good luck with the documentary. I asked, I asked David a month ago, I'm like, where's the documentary? <laughs> I want to see it. He's like, uh, what did you think of David Wallace when you first met him as your source? I only met him in person once. Uh, basically, he came onto our radar when this account on Twitter started kind of popping off about a few... Uh, fairly well-known individuals in Alberta and attached to the Kenny government. And then at first it's easy to dismiss, but then you look closer and it's just like, wait, how did this person know that? So I reached out via DM and it kind of went from there. And okay. I want to move to the, to actually, I want to skip over to the Nenshi stuff because the Nenshi stuff is really interesting to me. You wrote this, uh, I think it was like a week ago. RCMP knew of alleged plot to entrap Calgary's mayor. Audio recording suggests phone calls suggest conservative political fixer may have acted as a foreign intelligence source. When you first found the communications in the Klondike paper, because when I had, I still have the Klondike papers. I honestly haven't looked at it in forever. I found it so daunting that I decided when I got them and after a week, I was like, I've decided I'm no longer a journalist. I'm just, I'm just a podcast host now. I'm done. Um, I just, the investigative stuff for that was just too needle in the haystack for me. But when you, when you ran into the Nenshi stuff, what, did, was, it, was it something that you had to piece together from various parts of the Klondike paper? Or was it pretty easy to find? Like, how did David sort of lead you down that road? Or Richard or whoever it might have been? The Nenshi stuff uh, stuck out because it included the names of a lot of kind of well-known figures in the business and develop um, real estate development community in Calgary, as well as just a lot of conservative insiders. And it kind of, yeah, it sort of spelled out a plan to an alleged plot. I will say, I'm going to use the word alleged a lot here, but yeah, it stuck out as a very um, deliberate alleged plot to <laughs> basically entrap the Calgary mayor in a mm. scandal involving sanctioned Russian oligarch money. Did you think that it was like it sounded almost unreal? It sounded unrealistic. What was the figure? Forty billion that David cited to. Uh... That was a figure that was cited. It was forty billion dollars that was cited to uh, Calgary Council here named Giancarlo Cara. This was actually all broken by Cataland on Halloween night. That's right. And uh, yeah, forty billion dollars was the price tag of uh, what was being proposed, like the kind of money that would be flowing into Calgary. Mm -hmm. Um. You're from Winnipeg? Where do no, you live right now? I'm actually from Calgary. Are you there right now? Yes. So, okay, okay. I, I, I'm going to jump around because I, 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 I'm stuck on the Danielle Smith sort of um, questions that I haven't been answered yet regarding the Nenshi story. It's my understanding, and, and from talking to a couple sources and, and just from reading the Klondike papers, but it's not like there's no smoking gun in the Klondike papers that she was supposed to be the media that broke the Nenshi story once they figured the plot was thick enough for them to unveil it and, and try to rail him out of office. Do you have any inkling on that or do you have any confirmation on that? I've had no confirmation on that. But yeah, I know that was a, a claim that David Wallace had made to me as well. Nothing on my end on that, though. No. Um. Tell me about reporting just on the Klondike papers alone, like the, the, with the conspiracy thing that uh, some journalists have been talking about. Has it been difficult? Have you been like, 
you know, contacted by any other journalist saying, hey, you might want to like check into David Wallace. Like, I'm just curious how it's gone for you, because there's a lot of journalists that won't touch it. It's tricky because it's a it's a lot of um, I think Jesse Brown gets into it quite well. It's like there's always going to be this hanging question over whether this was doctored. Like we are on the one hand talking about 6,500 pages of emails and whatnot. Like it would be quite the effort to forge it, but you can't just post it. You can't just take it all at its word. Everything has to be independently verified. And that's kind of where the hard stuff comes in. So there are mainstream journalists who are working on it, I believe. And some have actually put out some great stuff. I believe it was Stephen Meyer and the Toronto star put out one related to the UCP leadership alleged, uh, well, scandal there. Yeah. And the RCMP involvement in it. Uh, it was Bob Weber from Canadian Press who put out a story about Alana Smith, a local era reporter whose phone calls were allegedly being monitored or pulled. There is mainstream attention on it. It's just investigative journalism is expensive and it's difficult for newsrooms to invest in it. Mm-hmm. I couldn't even tell you how many reporters probably have access to the Klondike papers right now and are working on it. I'm not in the loop. There's no, there's no group Slack or anything like that where we're. Yeah, I know. Remember, I tried that at the beginning, and everyone was like, "No." (laughs) It's like, "Hey, you tried what?" I was like, "We should pool our resources." Oh. And I was what I was really saying is, this is fucking too big. I I can't, I I just can't swim in these documents. Do you want to pull our? Because we knew we had David. Like, you know, David is is he's going to have a podcast at the network. I talk to him like every other day. Um, but he's he's you know he didn't have a copy himself for the longest time so it was like it was very difficult for me to figure out how to how to unroot these stories and then it just took too long i have a podcast i have a job i have kids it, it was like honestly have you had any breakups since you've been working on the klondike papers no no not since <laughs> no um what is it like being kind of a progressive uh, person in calgary dispel the uh the generalities and the stereotypes that people out east have about calgary um to dispel them i yeah i sure calgary does have a pretty good community of progressive journalists uh shout out to jeremy appel shout out to others who probably won't want me naming them right now because they might work for certain organizations that aren't as progressive as they are but yeah nope, they're around uh calgary's actually a relatively normal city in that regard i love calgary I, i've only been to calgary twice both times were during uh stampede and i was working oh yeah and- I'm a stampede apologist yeah, no, I didn't even go to the actual stampede. I just went to the events while stampede was on, kind of thing. Um, I was a I was like a uh, what do you call them? What was I? A liaison, I guess, for um, Adrian Grenier from Entourage. And I, I found out like five minutes after meeting him that he was the worst human being in the whole world. So I, I and, and yeah, so I ended up. Uh, so he's one of those guys where this is how I met him. He's sitting there. He's looking at his phone. And I'm literally the reason he's in Calgary. It's like me and my partner put on this event that he was showcasing one of his documentaries at. And he's sitting there like this in the restaurant. And I walk up and I sit down. I'm like, hey, Adrian, I'm James. I'm uh, one of the partners and I'll be your liaison. And he's like this. (laughs) He looks back down and I was just like, and I lived in LA. I know that look. And I was like. What was the liaison part? Like, what do you do? Like, what's the, what was the Like, you you show him around, you take him to events, you know, you take him to press, all that kind of stuff, you know? It was, I don't know, maybe liaison was just the title that my partner gave me. But but yeah, I was like a handler. I don't know, whatever you want right. to call it. No guide, I guess, yeah. Yeah. So when he did that, I was like, oh. 
And so I spent the next 10 minutes convincing his cousin to get Adrian to change hotels. And I just made, I was like, yeah, it's not good. Uh, you know, we went there and just there's something up with the room and I just wouldn't feel comfortable him staying there. So then he went to a hotel across town and I just took his suite. And so when I, oh my God, I have these pictures of me with his like, with his like fruit basket and champagne and stuff. Um, just because I didn't really like him um, because he was very snobby. I don't know if you've ever been to LA, but that once over cell phone kind of routine. Yeah. It's just like it is in the I didn't movies. enjoy LA too much though. Oh, it's awful. I don't think Canadian boys should really go to LA. Well, I went you there know? and it was during the NBA All-Stars. I didn't realize this ahead of time. So that made getting a rental car almost impossible. So yeah, just wasn't a super fun trip. Um, Where did you grow up? You grew up in Calgary? I did, yeah. So you went to the, and tell me about the Broadbent Institute. I was busting your balls earlier because we were uh, talking off air and the Fraser Institute came up and, um, you know, they're, they're crazy ideological institute. And I, and I joked with you saying that um, Broadbent, Broadbent Institute is kind of like their cousin, but um, they actually do good work. Can you just give me a little bit of an outline about them? Because I've never really done a deep dive. Uh, the Broadbent, Broadbent Institute is a public policy think tank that does kind of public policy research. One of its divisions is a news division, which is the one I work for, Press Progress, and we do public interest journalism. In a nutshell, do you ever get people criticizing you for being like in the tank for certain issues? And are you? And is that a bad thing? Uh, yes, they do criticize us for being in the tank for certain issues. I personally am I'm left of center, uh, democratic socialist, and I don't really believe that that's a bad thing. I think it's the idea of objectivity. The objectivity, sorry, in journalism is kind of a childish notion i mean we all have biases in my opinion is it so it isn't the truth it's the angle that you take to look at it is that the idea yeah i suppose it's the lens that i view the world through and the easiest example especially since you're out west would be like the energy industry one angle is environmental the other one is economical is that basically the easy one and then kind of go down the list from there i I just i'm just kind of curious because it there there is a good argument to say that right-wing think tanks produce, um, you know, data that is used by conservative politicians and some media, and it, it doesn't give you a full picture of whatever issue they're talking about or gives you a big slanted one. I know that you're, you, you, I know that you probably feel like your side is the good side. I'm just curious, though, like, isn't that the same thing that you guys do? I could say that, uh, I guess, we are largely powered, like, we look at the world through a lens of pro-labor. We're a pro-labor think tank. We believe in higher wages. We believe in things like healthcare, dental care, pharmacare. Right-wing think tanks, their stakeholders and their funders tend to be more things like the oil industry, the tobacco industry. I'll leave you to decide who is on the more wholesome <laughs> side of that. No, I even said to you off here. I mean, look, I, I'm, a, I'm a moderate. Um, your answers were so short with all the work that you did on the Klondike papers that I just pivoted to it because I'm oh no, I can, I was like, happy to extrapolate. Yeah, you said just, you were going to bust my balls a bit on this. That's okay. Well, I, I'll bust your balls right now. Um, <laughs> no, but you know, I do feel, even as a moderate, that there is this profound difference between the Fraser Institute and the Broadbent Institute. Um, one is that the, the Fraser Institute is is a very like they want they have an answer and they want you to find a way to get to that answer. And it doesn't feel the same way on the other side. Like the, the the Broadbent Institute, as I said to you off air, it feels like there is a greater good motivation there. 
and in the on the Fraser Institute side, it just feels like um, it's a very Anne Randian landscape uh, that only really cares about corporations. That's exactly what it is. Um, the Fraser Institute uh, serves a certain specific function. One example I'll give, like in the '90s, all the big tobacco companies were in a lot of shit in the United States. And so what they did was they started seeding money out to various think tanks across North America. And there's a very large network of them, of which the Fraser Institute is one. And it's now on public record in the U.S. courts that the Fraser Institute took money from big tobacco to put out reports kind of downplaying the negative effects of smoking. And it was in this time that our premier uh, was at the early point in her career, a researcher for them. And they published two books with this funding, uh, or I believe one at least. That was basically just a bunch of dubious studies saying that you know you can you can smoke up to fourteen cigarettes a day, and it's actually not that unhealthy for you. That's the kind of thing you're going to be dealing with with the Fraser Institute. Um, Fraser Institute also helped sow climate change denialism um, by taking a bunch of money from major U.S. oil companies that have that are major stakeholders in the Alberta oil sands, in particular Exxon Mobil, which operates as Imperial Oil and Coke Industries. Uh, basically, these companies had kind of discovered that climate change was man-made through their own research and began suppressing it. Then they went on to start sowing denialism through a network of right-wing think tanks across North America. Actually, a uh, recent episode, I, I interviewed investigative journalist author Jeff Dembicki about the history of this. He was pulling from a lot of confidential like insider oil industry documents kind of pointing to I guess what you could call a conspiracy to suppress climate science. Don't you hate how that word only means one thing now? Yeah, yeah. yeah. But yeah. Go Conspiracies ahead. exist, folks. It's just, yeah. It's you true. don't want to believe in all of them, but some of them. Wonder what, oh, I wonder what a moderate think tank would look like. <laughs> you know? Like, like I'm just I'm just imagining it on a, in a skit comedy version right now because um, the right wings do what they do. Um, the left, they seem to have a greater good in mind and yada, yada. But the moderate is just like, I don't know, like it's almost like an unthink tank. Like there's, there's no, they, they have no ability to plant a flag. I'd argue that uh, just about all think tanks, um, I mean, broadband excluded, are on the right. I mean, the nature of the concept of think tanks, it, it comes out of generally big business interests. And you does the think tanks to kind of come out of like a union interests? I'm not yeah, equating suppose, them. I'm just, cu- I'm just curious la- about how it goes. I would say labor interests. That would be fair to say, probably. Hi, I'm Steve Yurko. And I'm Tara Sands. Now available from Maji Media is our new podcast, Four Kids Flashback. Four Kids is the company who brought you the English dub of Pokemon in the late 90s and so many other shows like Yu-Gi-Oh!, Shaman King, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Kirby, the infamous One Piece dub, and so many more. We'll be talking to the people who worked at Four Kids. Actors, directors, writers, editors, producers, engineers, you get the point. And hopefully get the answers to questions both you and I have about the company. I actually worked there as a voice actor on some of the shows. And I was a kid watching the shows and remember way more than Tara does. And thank God for that. Steve is actually a professional storyboard artist, which gives some really unique insights into anime and animation. Subscribe today wherever you get your podcasts. That's the number four kids flashback. Um, 
So are you, and I'm, I'm not asking this because there's a wrong answer. I'll, I'll, actually, I'll lead with this. I vote NDP in every single election. It's just that my motivation is that they've never ran shit. I, I'm talking about federal election. It's just that they've never ran shit. So I feel like they should have a chance to crash the family car before I start voting for the other two jokers again. Um, but do you think that we are a leaderless country? How so? Well, I, I literally, um, you know, I, I don't feel, uh, I feel like our prime minister is like a bad soap actor. I'm not, you know, gonna, I, I don't, I don't wave fuck Trudeau flags and, and diss everything that he does, but it's, it's kind of cringy the way that he is. Um, you know, obviously I don't think Pierre Poilievre is a good leader. Uh, Jagmeet Singh um, is halfway decent for an invisible person, I guess. Um, you know, like it just doesn't seem to be like any galvanizing leader. Um, and then part of me doesn't even know if we want that, but it just feels like what we have right now is just substandard personnel. I just wanted your thoughts on that. Yeah, I guess I'd answer that like being very clear that I don't know what um, my, these are my personal views, certainly mm-hmm. not those of broadband, but I am of the belief that Canada is more so a bunch of mining companies than it is a country. So yeah, no, we're leading, wow. we have leaders, but our leaders are the corporations that are just extracting resources all over the world. Like over 50% of the world's mining companies are, are headquartered in Canada. Really? Yeah. Expand on that a little bit, because I've never, I, first of all, I've never heard that stat, and I've never actually heard a description kind of like that. It's more of a mining conglomerate than a country, whatever. You, yeah. I need, I, I need to hear more about that, because I don't know anything about the mining industry. No, well, it's a global resource extraction project. Like, basically part of the um, North America, the European countries, NATO, right? It's mining interests, it's pipelines, it's resources. So there's an idea out there that Canada is more of a mining company or a conglomerate. It's three mining companies and a trench coat is the joke then. Um, yeah, there's not, uh, yeah, the mining company, you know, I don't understand enough how uh, corporations and government cooperate behind the scenes. I don't know enough about like donors. I don't know how much they're allowed to give. I don't know. I, I, I mean, I, I could look it up, but I don't know how they work the system. Like, why do certain companies want certain politicians in if they don't have a quid pro quo happening? And what does that quid pro quo look like when it does happen? Do you know that answer? Because I would love to hear that. Probably not the best person to ask on it. You can try rephrasing the question. I can take a crack. We're a mining, more like a mining company than a country. That is a massive statement. I need a bigger, I need a bigger answer than the one sentence one I got from you. Play it around, but I mean, there's not really any way to vote against resource extraction in Canada. I mean, all parties will generally support the interests of. Well, I mean, certainly it's the case in Alberta. They're all um, companies. They get what they want. Now, Amy Klein should run for the NDP. In the <laughs> in the era of disaster capitalism, I think Naomi Klein would be a good candidate. I think she might be a bit too radical for the NDP. Really? I don't know. Just... They had a, they've always had a problem figuring out how to like uh, unite their radical side with their practical side of their party, I think. Um, yeah, I think that's that's kind of been their albatross, hasn't it? Well, yeah. I mean, you can look at what happened in British Columbia, the NDP. Uh, there was some friction there when a candidate ran on a very explicitly environmental program and it met with a lot of resistance within the NDP. And I find British Columbia to be a really strange place. I, I, I spent a lot of time there 
it seems wildly conservative for the fact that it's like also the hippie capital of Canada. Is it, is it split like that? Do you find like, I don't know if you know enough about BC politics or, or even just the people there. It's just that my impression is that it's like their liberal provincial government, everyone over here, were just like, Oh, they're just like a conservative government. No, they are. The BC liberals are conservatives. They just, they're liberal literally in name only. Yeah, no, there are a lot of very conservative parts of BC, though I'm not an expert on it, so I can't really speak on it too much. What can you speak on, Stephen? Klondike papers. Yeah, let's go back to Klondike papers. Um, are you working on anything new? Uh, mostly and can you follow. talk about it? Well, the last thing we put, uh, did on the Klondike papers was, um, as it turns out, David Wallace was actually known to RCMP intelligence as as long as two years ago. Was it that so, one? Yeah, this no. was um, something that had that did stick out to me. Uh, he was talking to the RCMP. This wasn't, I want to be clear, the RCMP's interest in him was not anything to do with Nenshi or anything to do with Peacock. But they did bring it up. The RCMP investigator, and this is in the Klondike papers, there were a number of recordings. He had been meeting with this particular RCMP investigator named Stephen Marissi. And this isn't like a regular, you know, Mountie Highway Patrol guy. Marissi explicitly states in the recordings that he works in intelligence. And the questions that he asks Wallace are pretty unrelated to anything that was going on in Calgary. Uh, except he did bring up the stuff with Nenshi in Calgary, which means the RCMP knew about some of what was going on and wallace in the recording gives two names one bill turnbull a prominent calgary developer and the other prem singh who is someone who appears numerous times throughout the klondike papers now yeah again to reiterate i don't think that this particular rcmp guy was looking at anything of the sort what listening to the interviews and just looking at the transcripts from them but they were, Wallace was acting as an intelligence source on primarily foreign intelligence uh, related to Europe, is what he told me, <laughs> which I found kind of fascinating. <laughs> Relating to Europe. Okay. That yeah. it down Make it that way you will. Yeah. Um, that, well, that's Russia, I'm assuming. Is it, is it, is it, is it disheartening to know that? David Wallace is, is, he's one guy. He's a rather remarkable guy for all various reasons. Um, I actually really like him. I, you know, I talk to him all the time. I've gotten to know him. Um, I like it when a lot of the, the batshit stuff that he said on the Dean Blundell show, when I was on with him the first time we had him on, as, like a, a bunch of it has come true since then. And it's just like, you know, he's like the shortcut. He's like the, the, the cheat code in the video game, but you still got to go find all the stuff, even though yeah. you have the cheat code. But the cheat uh, code someone described him as a, a MacGuffin. You know what a MacGuffin is? Is that like a MacGyver Machiavellian guy? No, like in a movie, like there's always like a MacGuffin, like the Infinity Stones and the Avengers, like one magical thing that brings it all together. Like the story, oh, like David's yeah. just always kind of there, like you know, whether it's getting into inner circles of Doug Ford's government or like working his way into circles in calgary like with all these stories wallace is always just sort of a part of it yeah he's like um leo leo dicaprio's character in catch me if you can if he never got caught 
right? Like, yeah. you know, because so. there seems he he likes it though. Like, I mean, he enjoyed like he enjoyed the work. I think it was like dopamine, like adrenaline for him though. Um, I, and I was talking to him, and I was like, you know, it's not like fixers really hang out with each other, but a couple of them know each other. But I asked him about elections and about um, what would Canadians really think if they knew what happens. Um, where the way that rival campaigns go at each other during campaigns, like, you know, the private investigations, the, the um, attempts at blackmail, like there are so many stories I know of people that worked on campaigns, like, Oh yeah, they tried to get us. uh, They tried to get a girl to hit on our candidate at the convention and all this kind. Like, it seems pretty crazy to me. And, and I don't think anyone really realizes that this stuff takes place at the level that it does. Yeah, no, that's a really good point. Like at the Klondike papers, it's a lot of politics, but it's a lot of, I keep saying non-electoral politics. And there's a lot of that in Alberta. Uh, we had one party rule, uh, the PC party, for 44 years. So the yeah. politics became very behind the scenes and it developed this cottage industry of rat fucking, essentially, that Wallace eventually found himself mixed up in, but it was nothing new. And we see similar patterns playing out in Ontario. I've seen how, it. There's a historical context to how Wallace comes on the scene too that I, I, I think is really interesting too because he. Oh, um, give me that one. Yeah, I probably know it, but I forget it right now. But go ahead. <laughs> this will probably seem kind of kooky, but I think it has something to do with sanctions that were imposed around 2016. Um, or sorry, a lot of sanctions get imposed by the U.S. in 2014. Russia, Russia originally. The Crimea one, yeah. of Ukraine, right? But there was an assassination that happened in 2006 of a. A Russian double agent. His name was, oh, I have to check this. Oh, the poisoning, right? The polonium poisoning, yeah. Mm-hmm. Litovenko? Alexander Litovenko. Anyways, uh, a former KGB agent turned double agent ends up getting whacked basically in 2006 with a radioactive isotope being sprayed into his tea. And an investigation starts, a big inquiry. This inquiry wraps up in 2016. And the British government, with this inquiry, con- concludes that he was assassinated and that Putin himself would have signed off. And this this resulted in a lot of people's assets, a lot of Russian oligarch assets, being frozen by the UK. And then a couple years ago, or a couple years later, Wallace starts getting active and kind of working contacts in the Russian government and setting up meetings, making introductions. And it's always about finding places to park Russian money that may or may not be on the up and up. I'm getting into yeah. speculation territory, but I think no, it's no, I get it. Interesting though. I get to it. keep I mean, in mind, like it's interesting context. Yeah, um, he's uh, the the Russian angle stuff is weird because like it feels like you know when he when he talks about when he's been in Russia. It's, it's, I mean, it's crazy. Like, like he, there was like, he, he said that like a, a guy came to like basically whack him. Um, he was like a, a henchman of some other oligarch or whatever, but he's so mysterious. Like I, I just, <laughs> I sometimes tell him that and like, I'm like, dude, you're like one of those superheroes, but you, you have like a gambling problem or something, <laughs> you know, like there, there's a way that you go about this. That is like really difficult to tell when you're, telling the truth and when you're not because i don't know if you know this about four years ago um i was working on uh, the patrick brown story uh, when he first resigned or when he first was uh reported to have done um 
uh, committed misconduct or whatever uh, with those two accusers. And uh, at the time, I, I didn't have an editor and no one was really publishing the stuff. And I was getting, I, my source was Patrick Brown's lawyer, who has since passed away. And, you know, I used to just post it and, and you know, and then I met David through there. And it turns out the whole time I knew David during that six months, um, he was like working me the whole time. <laughs> time he was just working and i was like and now i laugh about it because i'm just like this is so much this is like so hilarious to me that now we're like i'm producing this podcast and stuff because there's something in not endearing but there's something um satisfying about watching i'm I'm not saying he's a career criminal but but watching a guy in his kind of line of work just flip his own table and just say the hell with it. I'm just going to like shine the spotlight on everything that I've done. And then, then watching these conservative operatives and politicians just scurry like crackheads when the streetlight comes on, like, you know what I mean? Like cockroaches. It's, it's crazy to me. And I don't think I've ever seen a story like this. I can't think of any time in Canadian political history where some guy who is a bagman or a fixer or an operative has come out and just like shone the light on all the bullshit. And this is a first for us. Yeah, no, I can't say it's a common thing than um, anything I've come across either. How he fell into this is kind of a mystery to me too. Like, I don't know how one just gets into this line of work. He's told me the story in like bits and pieces. I the mean, Barry Bouncer Well, no, story? before that, like, oh, uh, like how, so basically in, oh, sorry, what did you mean by Barry? Like you start. I, I, now I don't feel like I want to say it. <laughs> Let me get, let me check with David to see if I'm allowed to say it first. But uh, but go ahead. What was yours? Oh, just uh, no. You go first. No, I, I heard that he was. Um, I'm going to get it wrong. David's going to kill me. But um, <clears throat> he knew a bouncer, and the bouncer got him security gigs. And then next thing you know, he's uh, delivered. Oh, that's what it was. He delivered a bunch of money to a Canadian politician in New York, and he drove over the, over the border, went to give it to him inside the bar, and walked away, and drove right back home again. Okay, that's, that's not what I do. I no. hope he doesn't get mad at you. <laughs> <laughs> it's hard, it's hard to keep um, track. He ends up in Russia in 1989. Okay. Is what I heard. And like this is a, like the time the Soviet Union is coming close to it's collapsing. And so there are a lot of people from the West, like American Canadian businessmen now going into the Soviet Union. Uh because it's kind of in the process of a pretty extreme economic policy that was called shock therapy, where they're They've basically put through this economic doctrine to just privatize all the industry. Hmm. It's like one of the most extreme wow. experiments in capitalism the world's ever seen. And so this meant a lot of potential opportunities for people from the West to come in and kind of cash in on that. And it didn't go well. Um, the idea of shock therapy was to just do complete free market capitalism. No regulations. Don't worry about any inflationary problems. No price controls. And it was a disaster and made Isn't life. Isn't that how the oligarchs help. were created, basically? Essentially, yeah. And it led to like a 10-year drop in life expectancy, like overnight in the uh, Soviet Union as it was going down. But it did end up with a lot of people. And according to Wallace, guys like him just sort of ending up there. And he was there for a bit. Yeah. it's. I, I should talk to him more about that on the podcast because I, I, I kind of avoid the Russia thing because... When he first came on, our lawyer was like, okay, if you're going to have that guy on again, <laughs> you know, make sure that he brings receipts for the stories that he has, basically. 
And, you know, if we have, um, if I start to, talking about the Russia stuff, I guess we can't get sued I guess, unless some oligarch sues us. But, um, you know, it's hard to, it's, it's hard to like feel that you're giving the audience like, you know what? Who cares? Actually, he's such a fucking entertaining storyteller. I, I almost feel like I could just disclaim it. David, listen, you know that I, I got your back and everything. Uh, allegedly all this okay like that's what we just tell the story go ahead well no i think it's interesting to point out that like russia's his russian connections are real but it's all always official channels i mean we have in the clinic papers and this has been completely confirmed we've heard the recordings on canada land mm-hmm. we have sergey Stroikov, who was russia's trade commissioner having a conversation with him government official and then yeah we have kirill mikhailov the consul general again like the consul general and he was pictured with Patrick Brown and David Wallace, uh, also verified in the mainstream news. And then we have two Russian officials in Toronto who were sent a letter by two city of Calgary officials, uh, Councillor Sean Chu and Councillor Joe Maglioka, of which uh, another official in the Russian embassy, Karel Kalinin, was a part of, and I believe the other was Stroikov. Uh, Wallace, yeah. They're, the Klondike papers don't actually show, to my recollection, any connection to dark Russian money directly. Yeah, no, I and and you know, um, I'm I'm really interested in the Plymouth Brethren stuff, obviously, because I've interviewed a, a whole bunch of ex-members. I know you haven't really covered it. Um, just as a general conversation, like like forget about the fact that you're a journalist and I'm a podcast host and we're talking about Klondike papers, but just as a sort of general general idea um do you think that i uh, people like myself are overblowing the sort of um importance that it looks like stephen harper swore on a brethren bible or that stephen harper had five members of this cult in the front row um you know like do we have to establish maybe i should just like pick your brain for a second like because i feel like the mainstream media I, i'm really happy that uh jesse brown put out put out rat fucker i i think that it is um it is really good journalism. It is all of the heavy lifting that uh, I refused to do when I received the Klondike papers and was talking to David every day. I knew all of these stories months ago. And it was just one of those things where it's just like, I didn't feel I would do it justice. I, I had, I was, I'm writing a book. I'm doing, so I just didn't do it. And, um, and when I saw Jesse come out with, I knew he was coming out with the, uh, uh, with it on uh, like a few months ago or a couple months ago. And I was really happy about that. And now that it's now that it's been out um, for I guess a couple weeks, all episodes. If you're a subscriber, I think maybe two out of the three are out right now. Maybe the third one is. I still am not seeing the mainstream media kind of pick up on it, and I'm not hearing any commentary about how it's pretty crazy that a cult and the companies that this cult owns are getting so many millions of dollars from conservative provincial governments, and no one seems to care. <laughs> yeah, it's a. Uh... I guess going back to the idea of non-electoral politics, uh, I don't want to get into the realm of speculation when it comes to the Plymouth Brethren. Oh, they're but very this is a group that has yes. fifty thousand yeah. members worldwide, and we know that there is, with that, a network of small businesses that put money into political causes. Well, on the outside, saying that they avoid political involvement completely. Press Progress has put out some work on it, but. It was uh, more my colleague, Emily Leadham, who um, put out some stories about some political finance activities that were happening in the prairies. This stuff does happen. Yeah, no, it does. Um, you know, I, I'm dying to see the the Conservative Party donor list from 2006, 2011, just to cross-reference the names on that list with uh, 
with brethren names because that's the interesting thing one of the interesting things about the brethren is that they're so close-knit that there's only like a there's a very small finite amount of surnames um that exist in each locality and so you're able to like it would be a really easy cross-reference but still i i'm i'm just maybe it's because i'm so rabidly atheist that i'm just i, I just can't understand why no one is upset like it feels like science if it was scientology we'd be like all over it but it's an, it's a lesser known cult and so we're like well we'll just wait and see i don't know you know like or or maybe they're compartmental maybe journalists are compartmentalizing the cult's religious activities with their business activities i don't know i i just wish i, I knew why it doesn't seem to matter you have to proceed carefully when you're talking about any litigious group Members yeah, like the Plymouth people. Brethren are so litigious that just me saying they're litigious could make them get litigious, right? Like they'll just they're litigious, proving that they are when they send the letter. But yeah, I don't know. Um, maybe I'm some people I'm, are saying that there's an international Christo-fascist deep state that involves groups like X, Y, and Z. Um, it's a fair question to ask. Allegedly, yeah, I wouldn't go that far. I just think it's money. I just think that they, I, th I think politicians overlook the cultiness of these people because they have money. That's what you know. I think it's as simple as that. Um, I did talk to a couple people who worked in the phone rooms during uh, when when Canada was trying to pass gay marriage, and 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 <clears throat> this fraudulent letter writing campaign that they did, where they would get brethren like young people to literally sign like a hundred different names on a hundred different petition letters and send that to their uh, local MPs to try to pressure them to say no to gay marriage. Um, you know, it's just, if they weren't attached to God, if they weren't abusing women and children and oppressing them, I guess maybe I wouldn't mind, but they're doing all of those things. Well, you right? have and those beliefs. I mean, are you surprised that they have a political agenda or any group like that might? Uh, I mean, everybody has a political agenda. The only thing that surprises me is that the media doesn't care. Agenda. Yeah, I hear you. That's the only thing. Fair um, Steve Maguziak, thanks for joining us tonight. Um, we'll have you back. I, are you putting out anything new soon uh, as far as the Klondike papers are concerned, or is it something that you'll play by ear? Um, sorry, repeat the question. I accidentally hit the mute button. Oh, that's okay. Um, are you doing any further pieces on the Klondike papers, and is Press Progress still working on it as well? Oh, yep. We have them. We're still working on them. Uh, check us out. Twitter, Press Progress. Uh, from Twitter still appears to exist and then pressprogress.ca online and we're also on TikTok and Instagram. So perfect. Watch the space. Steven, thank you very much. Thank you. Have a good night. Bye everyone. Steve Maguziak from Press Progress. Um yeah, it's a man of few words. <laughs> I didn't know what to do with him there for a second. Um, <clears throat> but he's good, he's concise. That's, every good writer knows the economy of words. It makes for an interesting interview. Also, um, you may have noticed I I mean, you may not have. I'm I'm very discomfort, uncomfortable right now because I was eating um, I was eating a steak yesterday night <clears throat> and I chewed up and up here. I have a wisdom. I still have my wisdom teeth. Like they never did any damage when they came in, so I just left them in. And the one on this side has cracked in two, but has stayed firmly implanted in the gum. Now it just kind of feels like a loose tooth from when you're a kid. But I know wisdom teeth have roots that are like this. So I'm quite scared and uneasy right now as to what to do about this. Um, <clears throat> so it doesn't hurt a ton, but it's like a six out of 10 always. I can feel a pulse in it. And uh, I, think, I think I should just take the weekend off from talking. 
Sorry, I just imagined thousands of people cheering. Um, but yeah, for real though, my voice is still hoarse anyways. And uh, yeah, I have a cracked wisdom tooth. So I don't know what to do about that. Okay, tomorrow, you know those people that you've known in the digital space for like ever since, you know, 15 years or whatever. And we have like a ton of mutual friends, but you'd never met him in real life. Well, one of those guys for me is Mark Baker. He is part of a U2 tribute band. He is like one of those guys. And it doesn't matter what you think about U2 because the passion that certain people have for certain things and certain bands is so amazing. You don't even care what band they love. You just love watching this person just like lose their mind and never get bored of a certain band. And for Mark, it's U2. He's known as U2 brother. You may or may not have seen footage of him wearing like a construction hat that has like sequins all over it plays the bass and he actually went on stage with uh <laughs> he picked up bono while bono was singing beautiful day uh because he's this mark baker's just this big dude and i'm going to talk to him about what it's like to be a super fan for one of the biggest bands of all time because i am honestly curious even though i'm not the biggest youtube fan, i don't hate them or anything like that but you know they're not my top 20 or nothing but just the passion that this guy shows is is so infectious um, and you know, I've heard him speak before. He's really funny. He's just a really all around good guy. He's also a teacher. So we're having him on tomorrow and next week. I should look this up because I don't want to get the dates wrong. Next week on the 17th, I'm having a ex member from San Antonio named Laura Payne on and Laura, um, was on the get a life podcast with um, Richard Marsh and Cheryl Hope and Lane Admiral and Carmen Drever. And uh, she has a story similar to Cheryl Hope's um, suffering abuse at the hands of elders within the Plymouth Brethren Christian church. And it is um, another one of those brutally awful stories, but one of those stories that she feels comfortable in telling. And so we are going to have her on to talk to her a little bit about that and how old she was when she got out of the cult, and how her life has been since. So uh, we will see you then. That's on the 17th. Uh, but we'll see you tomorrow with Mark Baker, and that will be the next time I see you. Oh, my God, my tooth really hurts. Holy shit. I might have to get this pulled before I do anything. On Blackball. Thanks, everybody. Blackball. Hey listeners, I'm Christy and I'm Melissa and this is Buried Motives where we dig deep into the details of some of the most gruesome dirtbag murderers. She said she enjoyed hurting things that can't fight back. And that is a disturbing view into the mind of a murderer in such a dirtbag. 
Yeah, that's not even strong enough words. This is totally a recipe for disaster and not to justify whatever is going to happen, but you can totally understand and see how this would be in the works. If you were only to look at what she did later on and not know any of that history, she would appear like off the wall crazy. Oh, 100% because we're not even close to getting to the end yet. But you can just see this pattern and all this kind of stuff developing in her, which is what we're here for. We're digging deep. Join us each Thursday as we unearth the dirt bags that live among us and the motives buried there. Hope you join us as we exhume the truth. Kits. I'm your eager beaver. And I'm Mr. Grizzly. If you love politics or hate politics, then have we, we the perfect, perfect podcast for you. The True North Eager Beaver. Incisive political commentary. We keep you up to date and give you the political and media literacy you seek. To help you cut through the bovine fecal matter. Facts first. Sound analysis. Sometimes I growl. Sometimes I sass. We impart civics and build community. And we share some laughs along the way. Being informed and engaged has never been more fabulous or sexy catch us on, on the dean blundell network or on our youtube channel or wherever you get your podcasts because, because democracy, democracy is, is something, something you do, do.